0: The ETC ETF Insiders Podcast takes you behind the scenes of the ETF industry. Here is your host.
1: Welcome to Episode 5 of the ETC ETF Insiders Podcast. We have a really interesting guest with us today to talk about eight ETFs he has launched with the help of ETC. Chad Mason will be joining us from the Cabana Group. Chad's first career was as a plaintiff attorney, and due to interesting circumstances, which he will tell us about, he then launched Cabana Asset Management, a registered investment advisor, and has since gone on to launch eight different ETFs. Chad has combined the specialized knowledge of both careers as well as lifetime experiences to create a real tool to help investors. Welcome, Chad. I'm excited to talk to you today.
0: Hey, thank you, Amanda. I appreciate all that uh, not only you're doing today, but all that ETC does for us. Uh, Great partnership, and I appreciate the opportunity.
1: Thanks for having me. Well, we definitely love our clients. (laughs) Well, before we get to the ETFs, um, I want you to tell us a little bit about the Cabana Group and what services you offer.
0: Sure. So um, we really started out uh, back in the mid-2000s just providing sort of a a family office, holistic um, service, which, as you already have alluded to, combined uh, legal uh, issues and finan- financial issues, often they're intertwined. And so the idea at that point was really to, to sort of facilitate and take out, you know, all the slippage that i would seen in my life as a lawyer between, you know, people bouncing from their uh, attorney to their investment advisor to their insurance, um, you know, provider, um, CPA, et cetera. So we really, uh, the idea was to bring a lot of those services in-house um, so that we could, for, I'm going to say, regular people um the services that we sort of uh, generally uh, associate with high network people or you know the family office services that are provided network folks so that was the the origins of it um since that time it has changed dramatically in that we've we've grown we still provide those services but we've grown sort of exponentially on the uh the asset management side providing you know, portfolio solutions obviously we'll talk about our etfs uh, today but You know, portfolio money management solutions not only to our clients uh, in this family office dynamic, but to advisors really all over the country uh, at this point. So you're really just um, that's sort of a a short summary.
1: So kind of a one-stop shop.
0: Yeah, that was the idea. Um, You know, I just had seen so many people you know try and get their you know estate planning uh, type things done uh, that needed to be coordinated with a financial advisor and also a CPA and perhaps. You know, islets were being involved or life insurance and people just oftentimes let things fall through the cracks just due to, you know, having to bounce from person to person. And and one professional didn't really know what the other one was doing. And so this felt like um, there was a better way to do it. And we certainly had the the background to to bring it all in-house. We brought in CPAs, et cetera, to sort of round it out. Um, But that was the idea. A one-stop shop. Well put.
1: Awesome, well, we always joke that um every good superhero has an origin story, so tell us how does a trial lawyer <laughs> decide to set up their own registered investment advisor
0: you know so it's uh as I guess is often the case sometimes thing bad things can can sort of cause you to look at the world differently and, uh, and and perhaps do better and that was that was certainly the case with me I had uh <clears throat> I'd grown up uh, in a family that was not from, you know, real wealth, so to speak. Um, my grandfather, who's someone that I very much admired, uh, started out uh, in life as a plumber and eventually had become a mechanical contractor. He sold his business uh, in the in the early 80s, uh, um, became kind of a, a sort of do-it-yourself investor uh, as mutual funds and the, and the industry sort of moved towards individuals having some power in investing. He certainly took advantage of that, and I watched him grow uh, his wealth um, between the early 80s and when he passed away in 1997, and um, when he died, I was in the middle of you know practicing law. Uh, I actually probated uh, his estate and my grandmother's estate, which was uh, – she died 11 months later, and at that time, um, I didn't know anything really about managing money, um, probably couldn't spell investing uh, unless given maybe one or two opportunities to try and uh i watched uh, my granddad's estate and what he had worked for get turned over to a financial advisor and um, a trust company uh, at a large bank and i watched uh what happened to that uh, in the tech bubble between 2000 and 2002 and um you know essentially his his estate and all he'd worked for for you know his whole life got wiped out in that process and i watched what my mom went through having to deal with sort of guilt and some other things associated with that investing. And um, as an attorney, I really kind of looked at you know how this could occur and why it occurred and sort of began delving into uh, the investment business. And in doing so, I really realized that, you know, it didn't work the way I thought it should work um, specifically with respect to risk management, with really understanding or presenting an investment a product in a way that could be understood by a layperson. In other words, I don't think we knew what we were getting into, and I don't think we were properly advised, and I didn't feel like um, it was appropriate that people just, you know, in this industry would just let, you know, the market dictate, you know, your losses to the extent that, that what happened with, with us, and so that was really the genesis of it, was watching um, losses, uh, personal, you know, family losses um, in in the investment world, and and thinking maybe there's a better way. And uh, it just sort of coincided in my life with with the time where I was, you know, at a crossroads with practicing law and I had an opportunity to I had a large case that was going on that was I felt like it'd settle and I was gonna be potentially getting some money from that for the first time in my life. And based on what I'd seen in the industry, there's no way I was trusting, you know, a stockbroker or a traditional financial services provider based on what i just seen. So that was really the genesis of this idea of, hey, you know, maybe I can do better. Maybe we can do better. And um, I really devoted beginning in about 2002, you know, several years of my life to just immersing myself in investing, portfolio management, risk management, um, really literally starting with, with the book, investing for dummy. I'm moving all the way up to, you know, really high level, you know, options and math, uh, you know, so that's, that's the, again a summary, uh, and I think it's a you know another example of sometimes uh, you know bad things can turn out uh, to be to make things better in the end. I, we wouldn't be having this conversation today, uh, and Cabana would not exist had it not been for you know what happened to my granddad, um, you know, in the late '90s and early 2000s.
1: Yeah, it's a really interesting story that I'm sure so many others can relate to, especially around that time. Um, and I definitely admire your your gusto to kind of jump in and, and see if there's a better way. Um, but let's change gears a little bit and talk about the ETFs. So what made you decide to turn your investing strategies into ETFs?
0: Well, um, you know, we've been uh, offering, you know, these portfolios and sort of a traditional SMA Um package for for years we've been offering these portfolios to our family office clients that i've already described really for you know since the mid-2000s and so um we, we certainly recognize that the way we did things the way we identify risk the target drawdown idea um certainly resonated so in uh 2019 uh the law changed as it relates to active etfs it really resolved um to me, the Achilles heel around uh, active management. You're able to sort of deal with risk through active reallocation, et cetera, but it always came with the cost of capital gains uh, taxes, uh, many times short-term capital gains taxes. And the law changed to allow um, active ETF providers the same tax neutrality that had been um, offered to index ETF providers for for decades. So, um, And you see this you know, Cavana is not the only firm that's that picked up on this. There's you're seeing a whole sort of slew of large and small players moving into the active ETF space due to this rule change. So it really allowed us to offer you know these SMA portfolios that we've been you know offering for a long time in a much more efficient uh, package from a tax uh, perspective. And then the other thing in that we have been in the business of distributing these portfolios to other advisors who are providing these to their downstream clients for, for, years. Um, I've been aware of just sort of the multiple layers of, of fees that are involved in this process. And so by us wrapping these in an ETF structure, not only do we get the tax efficiencies, but it really removed, um, an, a, 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 in my view, an unnecessary layer of fees so that much more transparency would be provided to that downstream client and their relationships with their advisor and the products, the advisors recommend. So really for both of those reasons, um, I also just personally feel that ETFs, you know, are the future, not not only the future, they're the now, I think they are what mutual funds were, you know, 30 years ago. I think they um, had taken it to the next level as far as fairness, uh, fiduciary, you know, c- compliance, all, all the things, the buzzwords, um, that I think are important in this industry. So I wanted to be a part of that. So even from the very beginning, uh, mid 2000s, you know, when ETFs began to really proliferate, I recognized that they were the place to be, at least in my opinion. And I wanted to be involved in that. So um, all those things sort of aligned at the same time. Um, and in 2020, about one year exactly uh, from the rule change, we launched our first suite of uh, target drawdown ETFs. And then this year, we launched three uh, additional ETFs, our leading sector ETFs.
1: Well, that's, yeah, we are saying you currently have eight um, ETFs on the market right now. So five of them focus on a target drawdown strategy. So talk about what is a right. target drawdown strategy and each of the, um, talk a little bit about each of the five ETFs that utilize this strategy and how people can can use them in their own portfolios.
0: Sure. So, again, this goes back to, you know, me sort of having an idea of of maybe a better way to do things. And, you know, we really built these portfolios from the very beginning, um, in a sense, uh, to address how we would want things done. Uh, We were our first clients. My mom and I were literally our first clients.
1: I love that. So,
0: So, you know, what made sense to me was I wanted to address. The thing that that was most important to me, and since the since that time, I, I believe this is the the case with everybody. I wanted to address, you know, the one issue that that causes the most sort of reluctance to get involved in investing, and that is this idea of how much might I lose, you know, when things go bad. And as we know, things do go bad. Inevitably, things are gonna you're gonna have bad markets. You're gonna have. You know, the fourth quarter of 2018, you're going to have the financial crisis. We've already discussed, you know, the tech bubble. You're going to have, you know, things like COVID, which come out of the blue. So I think all um, potential investors want that addressed on the front end, whether they verbalize it or not. So all of our portfolios really try and take that sort of guesswork out of it. So whether you're a Ph.D., you know, you've been investing your whole life or whether you're, you know, you have a sixth grade education, you could very quickly understand what the intended risk is in all of our portfolios by this target drawdown number so we have five uh, core target drawdown portfolios they range from 5 to 16. the numbers simply represent the intended drawdown of those portfolios from top to bottom um, in a relatively bad market and so what's a relatively bad market a recession um you know march of 2020 when covid uh, certainly hit our shores as a bad market. Um, I've alluded to the financial crisis 2018 in the fourth quarter. There's lots of times when the stock market, you know, has sold off 20, 30, 40, 50%. You know, during those markets, our portfolios are designed to draw down to that target number. <clears throat> so you know, by definition, what we're seeking to do is number one, present a product that people can actually understand. If they understand it, they're much more likely to engage and getting invested. And, you know, that's that's what we're all about, is getting people to start um, in this beautiful thing uh, called investing. So if they understand it and, they, and it addresses the thing they're most scared about, which is how much might I lose, they're much more likely to start. So <clears throat> that's why we numerically define it, because um, it, it sort of gets to the point of what's most important to people. And unfortunately, that has not been the case. It certainly wasn't the case with my family and it has not been the case you know with most other portfolios that I've looked at you really don't know you know how much are we intending to lose or what do you expect to lose when things get ugly so that's the target drawdown number we offer five so it really does cover you know the, the spectrum of suitability if you want to use the you know the nomenclature of the industry so if you're a really conservative person Um, You know, the five or seven drawdowns seems to make the most sense if you're younger and more aggressive, maybe the 13 or the 16. If you just are middle of the road, the 10. So, you know, by design, they cover sort of the spectrum of of most suitability uh, ranges of, of investors.
1: So essentially like the, the ETF um, is there there's like a target amount of loss. So if there you know it goes beyond that or it looks like it's gonna be bigger than that, then it sells out and you kind of maintain that position and then hop back in when things get better. Is that kind of the simplistic well, way of describing yes and it? No.
0: Yes, yes and yes and no. That's a great question. And oftentimes if I'm on a panel of, of other sort of Active managers who do provide risk management solutions, this comes up. And I think it's an important distinction between what we do and most other sort of similar um, asset managers. So, for first, uh, the first component or prong of your question is yes, you know, that number reflects what, you know, we intend for that portfolio to draw down in a bad market, again, from top to bottom, <laughs> before the risk or the beta has been removed from the portfolio. So that's the first component. The second part of your question is that if you hit that target drawdown number, do you just jump out of the market and wait to get back in? And the answer is no. And I think that uh, another Achilles heel of active management uh, has been this idea of, you know, you have some sort of a stop loss. um, And I'll I'll get into options later if you'd like to, but let's just keep it simple with, with stops. You hit a particular drawdown number, or a limit, and then you, you sell out and go to cash. <clears throat> and then you wait for, you know, some event to occur, some trigger uh, where you get back in. And, in my opinion, um, and again, this is my opinion, that's problematic and very difficult to do. I think it's very, very hard to time market. And I think if you look at active managers um, over a, a significant horizon, you see problems with that, trying to jump in and jump out. And so I recognize that very early on that, you know, a huge component to successful investing is staying invested and, and, and collecting dividends and reinvesting those dividends and the magic of compounding. And so, you know, if you want to get to the basics of investing, I believe that's the most important part of investing. It's, it's not necessarily timing and it's very difficult. In fact, I know, you know, no people, at least that I've met, who, who've been able to, you know, really time the market jumping in and out with success over, you know, a long track record. So uh, to answer your second question, we do not ever jump out of the market. We are always invested. What we do is we reallocate among the five main broad asset classes, depending upon what we're seeing um, in the business cycle and certainly technically with price in the market, which is all tied together. So, you know, we're, we're reallocating in response Changing conditions and assuming it's a deteriorating change in conditions, we're removing beta or risk when we are reallocating. And so ultimately, like in the uh, middle of March of uh, last year, just to give a good example, you know, we've reallocated three times and all of our portfolios are really hunkered down in very low beta positions like short term treasuries, um, gold, and even the US dollar which is also represented by an ETF, if that makes sense. And so we do this incrementally in response to, you know, obviously our algorithms output. And then as things uh, improve, conditions improve, like they did in April and May, we add that risk back on also incrementally.
1: Wow, that just makes a lot of sense. That's really smart. Um, so I understand that, that the target drawdown strategy uses the CARA algorithm. Um, kind of give us a quick overview of how this very complicated algorithm chooses the ETFs that the cabana funds hold.
0: Well, CARA stands for Cyclical Asset Reallocation Algorithm. Um, that's the, that, CARA is the acronym for that. And it's really not uh, very complicated. It's actually very simple. Um, and it really just um, plays on some very fundamental basics of the business cycle and investing. And so is looking at um, interest rates and particularly the yield curve, which is the spread or difference between short and long-term rates um, as an indication of how much liquidity or you know, money is available within the economy. <clears throat> and so interest rates, in my opinion, uh, really form the basis of the business cycle and certainly investment opportunities. So the first thing we're looking at is, you know, how much liquidity is out there in the system? We're all aware that the Federal Reserve is constantly manipulating the short end of the curve to either increase liquidity, in other words, step on the gas, or decrease liquidity, which is put on the brakes, to slow down the economy. So really fundamental basic tenet of, you know, the business cycle and opportunities in investing is simply interest rates. So that's the first thing that CARE is looking at is how much liquidity is in the system. The second thing she looks at is earnings. And uh, we look at the broad um, S&P 500 uh, to determine earnings. We're not trying to pick individual companies. We want to see sort of a, uh, a good aggregated snapshot of companies' earnings. And this is very much related to the first component, which is liquidity. If the yield curve is steep, then banks are incentivized to loan. They can make money. By paying interest out to depositors at a very low rate, and lending that money out to uh, consumers buy cars and houses at a higher rate, and they make a spread. So, the steeper the curve, the more that spread is, and the more incentive banks have to loan money. So, that's you know a very basic summary of, of yield curve. If there's a lot of liquidity, then companies should be able to access capital fairly easily and uh, invest that capital in whatever it is that they do as a business and make their own spread, which we call earnings. So there's a very strong correlation between liquidity and company's ability to borrow, invest in their business and generate their own earnings. So the second component is, is really earnings. <clears throat> the third component is simply price. And again, we use the S&P 500 as a proxy. Um, and if earnings go up, it's no surprise that price goes up. If earnings are going down, price goes down. So we really believe price is sort of omnipotent. And it it considers not only the yield curve, uh, but also earnings both current and in the future. So the the price component is a very important part of uh, the algorithm. So we look at price in several ways over several different timeframes. And all this data is ultimately aggregated and gives us a snapshot of where we are in the business cycle. So I'm going to pause right there and make sure some or at least a little of that made sense.
1: It did. Totally. (laughs) Did that.
0: Okay. Uh, So uh, once we've identified generally where we are in the business cycle, which, you know, Cara does do this um, aggregation of this data um, and weighting of this data. um, All we need to do next is determine generally what types of assets do well at that given point in the cycle. And you know if you're if you're as top down as we are, and let me preface this by saying, we're probably the most top down asset manager you would ever find. We, we truly are investing um, in asset classes, and we do that via you know index uh, type ETFs. So if you're really top down as, as we are, only five major asset classes: which are stocks, um, equities, one. Debt or bonds, whether it be treasury, corporate junk, whatever is the second asset class. I personally believe real estate today is an asset class. That's number three. The fourth asset class is commodities, which is certainly, you know, oil, gas, cows, corn, soybeans, zinc, aluminum, all the things that we use and make in life, you know, is the fourth asset class, commodities. And then the fifth one, by virtue of us being in the U.S., And the U.S. dollar currently being the reserve currency of the world is the U.S. dollar. So cash is the fifth asset class, particularly the U.S. dollar when I say cash. So if you recognize this, then all you really need to know is there's five basic buckets of asset classes and money is simply sloshing from bucket to bucket to bucket in the never ending desire to chase return or yield relative to risk. Well, how does it do that it needs to look and figure out what the conditions are to determine which bucket provides the best yield or return relative to risk and so that's what's going on constantly um, within the business cycle and around the world and it's kind of a zero-sum game you know when money leaves one bucket by definition has to go to another bucket doesn't just vanish you know if you sell stock you've entered into a transaction of stock for cash. Well, if you don't do anything with that cash, then it's in the fifth bucket, which is the U.S. dollar uh, in our case. If you use that cash to buy bonds, which slosh from the equity bucket to the bond bucket. So really what we need to do is figure out where we are generally in a macro sense in the business cycle, and then figure out historically what asset classes have performed relatively well at that point in the cycle and target those with one caveat. We need to build in something to protect that drawdown number. And we do that through uh, blending in inverse or non-correlated asset classes. In other words, the other buckets. So if the real estate bucket and the equity bucket is attractive, we need to build in some bond bucket or some commodity bucket or perhaps even to US dollar bucket um, to hedge in case we're wrong or things change rapidly like they did in, you know, March of 2020. So that, in essence, is what Kara does and what we do um, as far as recognizing the business cycle and allocating assets accordingly.
1: Yeah, so it really is a, a great tool for you guys to use to kind of know what direction you need to go. Um, explain to us kind of what a scene change is and how Kara uh, gives you kind of those signals to implement the scene change. I know you talked a little bit about some of the, the signals you get just now, but uh, talk a little bit about the scene change and how that works. Yeah.
0: Yes, a scene change is just our sort of in-house uh, t- terminology for a reallocation. So Kara, I love to say this about Kara, you know, she, she has no bad habits. She doesn't drink. She doesn't smoke cigarettes. She has no um, dysfunctional personal relationships. <laughs> All she does is work uh, 24-7. So she doesn't sleep. Uh, K- Kara just works. So Kara's um, downloading and aggregating the data I just described every day and all that's updated, so we're tracking uh, the business cycle through the methodology I just described um, and watching it. And so we're able to see as things are improving or deteriorating, so we're able to, you know, sort of identify when scene changes are going to occur, and then in doing so, you know, CARA advises, if you will, what asset classes need to be reallocated into, uh, first and foremost, to protect drawdown, And, and secondarily, uh, you know, to produce profits over time. And so he sort of recognized. and this is, I actually had a client, a couple of clients earlier today, we had the same discussion. Uh, they were not really savvy. They've not invested in the past and they really kind of wanted to talk about basics. And if you want to get down to basics, investing is really just about getting started, minimizing losses in bad markets and staying invested. And if you can do that and the sun continues to rise in the east, um, you win. In fact, over any 20 year rolling period, um, markets have been up. And so if you can just, and that's the history of the United States. So, you know, if you can just do those simple things, um, you know, you can change lives for people. Um, and that, and that's, a, that's a wonderful business to be in. So really that's what Kara's doing. She's identifying when we need to take risk off, to protect that drawdown, And, and doing that does the first thing, which is gives people confidence to, to get invested. It also does the second thing, which limits losses, and it, it keeps people invested because they're not seeing themselves, you know, get wiped out. They understand the process, and so they're following a rules-based system, and they stay invested over time, and the idea is that they win. if, if They can do those simple things. Investing is simple, but it's not easy,
1: exactly. and so we
0: try and address the not easy part.
1: How often do you do seeing changes? Do you... Have you noticed a pattern, or does it seem kind of random sometimes? You
0: know, it's it it is it's that's a a great question. It comes up frequently, and the answer is it just depends. Um, you know, we've we've had years, um, you know, going back over the past. What are we at? Seventeen years now um, of modeling and investing money in this, you know, in, in some form or fashion, as, as I've described. I've seen seen changes, you know, twelve times a year in one year. And I've seen I've seen changes where we've had you know one in a year. To give you an example, right now we have been in the same scene since the end of November of last year. Oh, that by far is, is the longest we have ever been in any one scene, and particularly the scene that we're in right now. And you know this has come up a lot in, in conversations I've had with advisor clients. Uh, you know, why is that? Everyone really thinks it's a reflection of, of the uniqueness of COVID. Um, just some really, really unique circumstances as it relates to earnings, you know, really falling, you know, historically hard and then rebounding historically, um, s- strong, really, for lack of a better word, since then. So, you know, right now the market is weak technically, um, and we're very close to reallocating. But to answer your question, you can have years like this year, uh, 2017 was a very, very, stable year, you know, one or two reallocations. So it really varies. It can be as many, we've seen as many as as 10 or 12 and as few as as one or zero, if if you're looking at this year.
1: Well, let's switch gears and talk about your newest funds. Um, You have CLSC, CLSM, and CLSA, which are target-leading sector ETFs. So how do these differ from the target drawdown funds?
0: So, uh, great question. you know, we really saw that the target drawdown funds were being used, I don't want to say exclusively, but primarily by advisors as a core solution. Um, if you look at these products, they're very, very uh, diversified. They typically have 10 equal weight positions um, across these asset classes. Um, just a really vanilla, broad, um, and, and hopefully safe place, an understandable place. Uh, to put a client's money. So we saw that you know a lot of advisors were using this as a core solution, and then they were you know looking for other alternatives to play around the edges, so to speak, and something that the client was, was downstream client was interested in or some expertise the advisor had, et cetera. We were also seeing a lot of advisors wanting um, a more aggressive, if you will, or a less diversified um, solution which could be used in a sleeve like a UMA account, um, certainly in the broker-dealer warehouse space, you know, looking for a risk-managed uh, sort of sleeve to a, a larger portfolio. So I think the leading sector uh, ETFs are sort of our response to that. They are uh, unequally weighted, and we don't um, demand that CARA, you know, puts out 10 you know, ten positions. So if you look at those, you'll see them vary scene by scene of, as to how many positions, and what the weighting is. There are some limitations on it. So it's not completely unfettered, just the wild west. Uh, but we have loosened that up a little bit. And as a result, you know, we loosen up the range. The conservative does represent a range of drawdown versus a identified number the moderate does as well as does the uh, aggressive, excuse me. Does so, that makes
1: sense? Yep, that does. That totally makes sense. So, um, we were saying CLSC is your conservative fund, uh, CLSM is moderate, and CLSC is aggre- CLSA is aggressive. So what factors kind of go into determining those risk rankings? Is it something that, like, Kara tells you, or do you set those ahead of time?
0: Same. same uh, we have the same database. We're using the same asset class ETFs for all of these portfolios. What we're doing in the the leading sector uh, example is we're simply allowing Kara to overweight those sectors she would otherwise choose to overweight were it not for the limitations or handcuffs we put on her. So understand Kara wants to go out. She wants to first and foremost address drawdown with specific numbers. Secondarily, she wants to pick winners. And if you let her do what she wants to do, she's going to overweight those asset classes that she feels, you know, have historically uh, done really, really well. With the target drawdown um, portfolios, we make her um, equal weight those. So the leading sectors, we take that hand, those handcuffs off of her. She can go in and overweight, for instance, uh, the Q's. If she thinks that the, you know the large cap Nasdaq tech um, index, you know, is is the winner, she'll want to overweight that beyond a ten percent allocation. And the leading sector portfolios allow her to do that.
1: It makes a lot of sense. So what kind of historical analysis have you done that kind of influences the positions in each of these funds?
0: Um, you know, that's you know another, I think, a huge advantage that we have in that, you know, CARA is really able to go back and look. We, we go all the way back to the early 2000s. We can't go back, you know, much beyond that because ETFs just didn't exist. Um, in sufficient sort of um, range, if you will, of assets to make it meaningful. But beginning in the early 2000s, you can really go back and, and, and figure out, you know, where are we in the economic cycle and, you know, whether bull, bearish, rising rates, falling rates, what have assets done in those situations? How have they performed relative to one another? What's the correlation coefficient? What's the embedded math in those relationships? So, you know, we've got a long track record of her being able to do that and, and make help make decisions you know, machine through machine learning i mean that's the fancy word now uh, of looking at you know how asset classes have performed in certain circumstances and not only you know ha- have, have they done well or poorly but how have they performed relative to one another and that's a really important part of what we do is these relationships between asset classes and that again is why we have to be so top down we have to be so broad Because if you're not, you're going to have, you know, convergence among asset classes and it's going to be very difficult, um, even in a a secular sense, um, to to protect drawdown because you need to have that inverse or non-correlated relationship at certain times to protect the drawdown. So care is able to go back, really study the way things have performed, not only in the market, depending on the business cycle, but relative to one another. So She's done that, and then we've got a lot of time. We've been managing money, you know, actively, you know, with this process or some iteration of that for many, many years across all kinds of markets. And so, you know, every time she sees something unique like COVID, you know, personally was one of the you know most rewarding times, you know, of my investment career was to see how we responded, how this process, you know,
1: in a real
0: black swan, you know, event, how we did. Were we able to hold drawdowns? did Kara get out of the way quick enough? And then once you've gone through that, you know, you can also take the next step, which is re-optimize. You can say, okay, Kara, let's incorporate all of this uniqueness into your thinking. So you're essentially, Kara can add layer upon layer upon layer of knowledge, which is really to me machine learning, to get better and better and more robust. So, you know, we do that uh, as a matter of just course every three to five years. Uh, We also did it, last year, um, just simply in response to COVID and what a great, you know, learning you know opportunity that is for what we're doing.
1: She really is a hard worker. She doesn't stop, does she?
0: <laughs> she does not. She does not. She doesn't sleep at all.
1: Can you walk us through the current holdings in the moderate fund, the CLSM, and what does that kind of say about the current state of markets right now?
0: Yeah. So um, as I've alluded to, we've been bullish, um, you know since since november of last year we're in a what i call a, a scene 1a which is coming out of bearish conditions which is typically a higher beta um higher risk type portfolio so if you look at her positions right now she's in tech which really reflects you know technology you know for the past really more than two decades has outperformed all other asset classes across all all markets um, we saw that during covid for For one particular reason, but we also see it just in a traditional cyclical bull market tech as well. So she she recognizes that Uh, she's in tech. Um, We're also in uh, the broad S&P 500. I think that's a play on, again, growth. Um, It's also a play on rising interest rates. There's a lot of financial services firms in the S&P 500, which benefit from uh, rising rates, particularly a steeper yield curve. Um, you know, so so we have that. We also have consumer discretionary, which is no surprise. You know, an asset class or a sector of an asset class that would do well uh, in an expanding economy. Uh, so we're in consumer discretionary. And then, as, as I've already pointed out, we're always hedged. And so she's got a hedge built in. Again, con, you know, um, commensurate with her moderate risk target. So she's got a long-term bonds, which are going to, uh, in general, uh, move opposite. Um, you know, of the market. So if we saw really a, a steep sell-off, percent 20% in the, in the equities, um, you know, you would expect to see, um, you know, a rising bond prices. So the bond position reflects that. So the point in that is we're always hedged. Even in the most bullish of circumstances and in the most bullish portfolio, we always have a hedge. And that's also true, you know, in the depths of, of March of last year when we were very, very bearish and very, very locked down. We still have an equity hedge built in. So if you looked at our portfolios, you know we had a, a high dividend um, large cap position to hedge the other way. Um, so we're always hedging, um, you know, in case we're wrong, you know, and, and trying to get out in front of that. So it works both directions.
1: Definitely gives you a good snapshot of what the market's doing. That's really interesting. Would an investor use both a target drawdown fund and a leading sector fund in their portfolio?
0: Absolutely. And that's, you know, that's really what our pro series is. So, you know, most of our um, special advisor clients are using um, the pro series, which is a combination of the target drawdown series and um, the other three leading sectors. Uh, the weighting of those certainly depends upon the target drawdown number of the core portfolio. So the seven or the 10 is going to have more of the CLSC and CLSM involved in it with the CLSA. Uh, conversely, the 13 or 16 target drawdown core portfolio might have more CLSA and CLSM, and CLSC at a given time. Really, but the, the short answer is absolutely. There's some some statistical advantages that we've modeled um, in doing exactly that.
1: Advisors can really tailor it to exactly what their customers need and and kind of pick and choose what works best for them. It's it's a great idea.
0: Yeah, I mean that, that that's the idea is to really create you know, a very much uh, risk-managed, transparent um, ecosystem, and and then let the advisors do what they do best, which is run their practice, they know their clients, and custom-tailor and fit uh, these solutions to their client, all within sort of this uh, redundant and, you know, robust ecosystem.
1: So what has the reception been from advisors and investors since the launch of these funds? So like, as of the end of the third quarter of 2021, what were the assets under management?
0: So, um, you know, I'd have to look at ADVs to be exact. So I'll give you, you know, ballparks. We have um, seen a a steady increase in our flow, um, you know, from, you know, perhaps maybe doing 15 or 20 million a month to, um, you know, I think last month we maybe did 80 million, 100 million the month before. So, you know, we've had months as high as 100 million of inflow a month uh, recently. Um, so you know a significant increase. I think COVID and our ability to you know to maintain drawdown during that time certainly helped. I mean we already had significant flow in the uh, in the SMA products we were offering. So I really don't know. I think I think we would have had a big increase in flow no matter what. I think the ETF structure has afforded our advisor clients an opportunity to really attack higher net worth um, clients, people who have trust, non-qualified accounts. It's just such an advantage to have sort of a risk-managed solution like we have, all the things that I think are attributes, and then also have the incredible tax efficiency, the tax neutrality um, that's now available. It just really gives those advisors a, a, a huge advantage you know, with those high net worth people. So I think Um, there has been probably a significant, I haven't haven't broken that down, but my gut is um, a significant influence uh, in the the high net worth space by the ETF structure.
1: Seems like advisors and clients are kind of really starting to understand the value in investing this way and and how it can help them.
0: Yeah, I mean, again, investing is (laughs) simple. It's just not easy. You know, I don't ever proclaim that we have the greatest, you know, the sharpest knife in the drawer, or we're the best or anything else. But I do think we address some of the real pitfalls in investing and, and really the biggest pitfall is the man in the mirror. You know, if we can get out of our own way and encourage and, and create solutions that allow people, you know, downstream investors to get out of their own way and get started and minimize losses and stay invested, then that's that's really at tobana what we're about. It's really that simple. Um, and we just try and package it in a way that addresses the things that makes that makes di- um, investing difficult because it shouldn't be. Um, and most of the difficulty really is between our own ears, our own emotional situation, our own psychology. We're constantly being bombarded, you know, with information that is likely not relevant that makes it difficult. So having a rules-based process where you can set reasonable expectations. And then once those expectations get met, um, it goes a long way to to keeping people invested, and that's what we're really trying to do.
1: Stop overthinking it and let Kara do the work for you. That sounds like a, yeah, a good I mean, solution.
0: You know, think, <laughs> that's, that's a really simple way to put it, and it's effective. And I think it, it applies to people who are you know sophisticated and not sophisticated. People want to be to understand what they're getting involved in. They want to be able you know, to understand or have an expectation of, of how things are going to look if things go wrong. Mm-hmm. I mean, everything's easy if it goes right. Yep. You know, what people really want to know is what's it going to look like if things go wrong? If you can address those things and it actually turns out to be the case, then, you know, you've got to, my advisor partners have clients for life. yeah. And they can be proud that they're changing those downstream clients' lives forever, their kids' lives, you know, their grandkids' lives. And that's what's such a great thing about the business that we're all in. You're in it, I'm in it. Um, you really do have an opportunity, um, you know, to, to really impact in a good way um, people's lives. Um, so I'll get off my soapbox. I can, <laughs> can preach about this for hours. But, you know, that's all we're really trying to do here is keep it simple. Uh, address the things that really, I think, fundamentally matter and not, not trying to outsmart anybody.
1: It's a great message. Certainly not ourselves. We always like to end the podcast with a couple fun questions. Um, Do you remember what was your first paying job?
0: (laughs) My first paying job? Yes, I did. I was a dishwasher. (laughs) I was a dishwasher at Western Sizzling.
1: Oh, my gosh. I love (laughs) it. (laughs) That's a hard job.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I did it. uh, Yeah, and I I will also (laughs) admit I only did it for about three weeks. (laughs) <laughs> I actually got hired right during football season. I live in Fayetteville, Arkansas, which is where the University of Arkansas is. And uh, after washing dishes for about three weeks after Razorback games, I think I uh, I got another job uh, delivering pizzas. So, but my first job was a dishwasher at Western Circle.
1: Well, you'll have to listen to the podcast, the very first one we did, and hear Garrett's first paying job because it's quite funny.
0: <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll have to ask him that.
1: Yes. So when you aren't working on Cabana, what do you like to do for fun?
0: Um, You know, I like to, uh, I really just kind of like to hang out. I like to grill. I like to watch sports. I play tennis. I play golf. Um, I've got a little farm, and I have an old Jeep, and I like to um, drive around my farm um, in my Jeep, you know. so that Sounds <laughs> uh, perfect. basic stuff. I don't like to fly, so travel's kind of out. But um, that's about that's kind of the the extent of it.
1: So are you a football fan? You said if you're in Arkansas, are you an Arkansas fan? Uh,
0: I, of course I'm a Razorback fan. Um, in Arkansas, that's all we got. So <laughs> we <laughs> much have to be a Razorback fan. I'm also a huge New Orleans Saints fan. Um, and now my kids have all gone to the University of Kansas, so I'm now a uh, a Kansas Jayhawk fan. But, oh. yeah, I, I'm, I'm a big sports fan.
1: Oh, well, that's wonderful. I'm a huge uh, NFL football fan. I love pro football, so that's pretty much what our Sunday is, is watching football all day long. Yeah. <laughs> Living so in who's, who's your team? I'm a Denver Broncos fan, a suffering Denver Broncos fan for the hey, past man. couple years. <laughs>
0: yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm kind of a Broncos fan. I, I, you know, I was a really big Broncos fan. I went to law school in Denver at DU, so um, I was a big Broncos fan out there. Um, but since my kids went to Kansas, they're kind of Chiefs fans oh. and it's hard to be both. Yeah. You know, that's sort of like, you know, you know how that is. It's like being a Falcons fan and a Saints fan. You can't do that. Can't so, do it. Yeah. We um, don't like
1: the Raiders um, or the Chiefs. But,
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I But I'm, I'm a bit of a Broncos fan myself. I'm a closet Broncos fan. let's put it that way.
1: We'll take it. And sometimes I won't. After <laughs> certain bad Sundays, I don't, won't admit I'm a fan. So <laughs> we all have our moments. And you got
0: Teddy, Bridge, you got Teddy Bridgewater from the Saints, and um, I think that was a good call. I think so, so. too. We just need yeah. some.
1: We need some time. And the Saints are. Hopefully, we'll get it together. They're just a very schizophrenic team right now. You never know what you're going to get.
0: That's right. We did. We did win on Sunday. We pulled it out though. So. Um anyway, um, I'm glad to, <laughs> glad to talk football with you anytime.
1: Yes. Well, um, I think that does it for us. If um, any of our listeners want to learn more about the Cabana ETFs or view the fund's prospectus, you can visit the fund website, cabanaetfs.com, and it's C-A-B-A-N-A-E-T-F-S.com. Or you can always call one 239 9536 Thank you so much for listening. An investment in the fund involves risk, including possible loss of principal. Investors should consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses carefully before investing. For a prospectus or summary prospectus with this and other information about the fund, please visit the fund's website. Read the prospectus carefully. This fund is distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.